Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, .store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. All right. Today's guest is a repeater. He holds a PhD in sociology from Stanford, specializing in political sociology. Professionally, he was a former senior civilian intelligence analyst with the Department of the Army with an expertise in the former Soviet Union, the former Yugoslavia, and organized crime. In recent years, he has produced some incredibly scholarly work on the rise of the Christian right for academia. There, you can find much of a three-part trilogy he's been working on called The Christian Right's Fourth Generation Warfare in America. Highly recommended, folks. We're big fans of it here at the farm. He has also contributed to Political Research Associates, which I just talked uh, with Russ Ballon about a couple of weeks ago, and Salon, among many others. He is also the founder of the blog CJ Street Report. Folks, I give you guys the great James Skamanaki III. James, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Well, thank you. Um, can I just make one addition? Oh, to, go for it, sir. To your introduction. Okay, yeah, I do CJ Street Report, but that was on um, Pensacola politics. My actual blog that I do on fourth generation warfare is four uh, GW dot dot dot. All so right. So that's that's where I put some of my, you know some of my stuff that uh, that I've been writing. Well, there you guys go. Four G dot dot dot, or but probably I'm just. Looking- yeah. Go. I'm or, looking forward to the discussion today on Oath Keepers. Oh, yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. So on that note, we are going to take a deep dive into the Oath Keepers. We talked a bit about them the last time I had James on, but now we are going to take an in-depth look at their ideological influences, the background of a Mr. Stuart Rhodes, the group's early history, and what is commonly known as the Battle or Bunkerville uh, among such circles, though to the rest of us, it is generally referred to simply as the Bundy standoff. That will be our centerpiece, and uh, it is an interesting state of events that led to it. So there were a lot of interesting uh, players active in that event, probably goes without saying, as well as the financial and religious forces behind the Oath Keepers, all of that we are going to explore today. So to start off with, let's get into one of the major ideological influences of the Oath Keeper. That would be a certain Gary North. So James can give us a bit of an overview of this guy and the worldview that he holds or held. Yeah, so Gary North is a major strategy for the Christian Reconstruction uh, religious movement, which was founded by Rusus Rushduni. And this movement, the Christian Reconstructionist movement, is one that many elites in the Christian right really don't realize they've been influenced by. But scholars who looked at this movement understand that it was the driving force of the Christian right. They really laid out 
the strategy of what would unfold over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Okay. So now, Gary North was Rusus Rushduni's son-in-law. Now, Rushduni is the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. So North is his son-in-law, and North is one of the uh, early um, practitioners, if you will, of fourth-generation warfare. He's not the only one. Obviously, Paul Weirich is one. William Lind is one. But he's a major guy, a major figure. Right now, Rush Juni borrowed this idea called pre presuppositionism, right? Which is basically all our beliefs are based on presuppositions. And Rush Juni argued that Americans had two choices, right? You could follow the laws of God or you could follow the laws of man. And following the laws of God meant you were building the kingdom here and now on earth and putting religious zealots in charge. This is the philosophy of theonomy and dominionism, okay? So this is where the right wing is. Not everybody would agree to be a the, uh, you know, a dominionist. Some people even deny that dominionism exists. But this is a, a philosophy of gaining power, Okay a philosophy of gaining power in which they're going to delegitimize the federal government and the constitution. So the idea that Rush Dooney has and other religious people as well is the idea of making the U.S. a, a Christian nation and the foundation for Christian nationalism. Um, and so I kind of liken, I think I, I could argue this, that Rush Dooney, if Rush Dooney is the Marx of the movement, Gary North might be its Lenin in a sense, because he's, he's very much a practitioner of how do we get from here to there? What do we have to do to accomplish this philosophy? Put this, give us an about. So he's a political strategist and is also a very radical libertarian economist, right? And so he wants to bring the entire U.S. economic system under biblical law, which for him is the gold standard, railing against fiat money and extreme libertarianism. So as a strategist, he believes in this having a centralized strategy and then decentralized execution through a wide variety of networks, but they're all executing the same strategy. And so Weirich did that with the Christian, right? And Lind does describe that uh, for the militia. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a centralized strategy, but a lot of networks doing execution um, on their own. And it's really interesting, uh, obviously, as we see sort of later on, some of the characters that they would use for this. It, um, oh gosh, it reminds me even more of Lenin. What did he have that expression? What was it flexibility in memes, but not in aims or something like that? Uh -huh. They would, uh, they would use anybody that they thought could help them advance the communist agenda, but uh, that they were inflexible about. Exactly. And, and you know what's really interesting? If you, if you look at Howard Phillips, for example, he's like an unabashed fan of, of Lenin, right? And he, and he goes, oh, yeah, we've read all the left-wing stuff. You know, we've read Marx, we've read Lenin, we've read Trotsky. And it's really funny because they're not, they're not afraid to say that we took lessons from all these people. Right. You don't get that on the left. You don't say, oh, I, I studied Lenin. 
<laughs> you'd be a communist. <laughs> but but, uh, but yeah, you know. that's, that's a reoccurring theme on the right, really, since the onset of the Cold War. Um, the only way we could possibly defeat communism is by learning the methods of Lenin and Stalin and then going a step further than they would. <laughs> exactly. All right, so uh, let, let's get into Norris' perception of the Federal Reserve System. I mean, this is really crucial to a lot of the stuff we're going to go over, so it probably warrants a bit of an in-depth explanation. Okay, so you know when you look at the right wing, they have a they have an idea of how they're going to come to power, and this goes back in, into the seventies, even the, in, in the nineteen eighties, and their model is basically the Weimar model. Okay, that there's going to be um, catastrophically high rates of inflation, and that's going to lead to an economic collapse. Thus, they become focused and obsessed with the Federal Reserve System, and they become obsessed with the debt, right? So this is their model, how they're going to come to power. Um, and they're constantly looking for indications that this Federal Reserve fiat fiat money model uh, is going to crash. So they want to, you know, if you're a really right winger, um, you're going to push for the gold standard, you're going to push for the abolition of the Federal Reserve System, and you're going to push for the um, for a balanced budget. Now, the difference between the economics collapse uh, conspiracy theory um, pushed by Oath Keepers and its libertarian allies, and on the other hand, the mainstream liberal economists, is that the Oath Keepers um, basically believe that the, the elites are going to engineer the collapse, that, that this collapse is like a deliberate policy. Um, Gary North, on the other hand, um, he thinks the economic collapse is going to be God's judgment for running an unbiblical and fraudulent fiat money system, okay? But when you get to the mainstream uh, liberal economists with impeccable credentials, they believe the economic system is inherently unstable. And if it does suffer a catastrophic financial crash uh, because it keeps growing larger and larger and it's more opaque and it has even more greater uh, global connectivity, it could take the US government down with it. That is, the, the financial obligations of the financial market are, are just beyond the capacity of the Federal Reserve System to absorb anymore. So. For the liberals, for mainstream economic thought, it's the system is inherently unstable. We're just, if it happens, it's not going to be because anybody engineered it, except that the system is engineered to be too big, too opaque, and too interconnected. Uh, and so you even then have, you know, progressive analysts thinking that there could be a, a political collapse. And it goes without saying that probably left-wing and right-wing populists, if they have anything in common, it's the idea that the economic system is rigged against the majority of the American people, right? Oh, absolutely. So that's, that's, basically, that's basically, I think, in a nutshell, um, what the economic collapse is. You know, basically the right-wing is, the system's going to produce hyperinflation. It's going to collapse, but this is going to be a deliberate policy of the elites, whereas mainstream economists really don't think the inflation's the problem. It's the financial system is just too complex. And certainly there's a, a lot of arguments to be made for the latter, to be sure. Oh, right. Exactly. 
Now, how does the uh, militia movement of the 90s tie into these notions of economic collapse? And what were some of the characteristics and hotbeds of the movement back then? Well, you know, the, the, you know, as I wrote some papers, I said, look, you know, the militia movement when it starts is really the creation of two religious movements. Christian identity is one of them, for sure. But the, the really larger one is the Christian right. They're the ones that actually create this movement. And it comes out, you know, when they look at, when you look at their gun rights um, worldview of the militia movement, right, you, you know, opposing all gun control, that's, they borrow that from the National Rifle Association and the Gun Owners of America. And so you can't isolate these movements from these larger and more well-funded organizations, right, giving them the ideas. What they do is express the issues more starkly. They use harsher or uh, more threatening rhetoric or, or extreme rhetoric about it, but they actually just borrow a lot. Now, the major innovation of the, of the, of the militia patriot uh, movement was the idea of the new world order. And this is really um, a rehash, rebranded John Birch Society rhetoric about insects. And later on, uh, you know, when globalization takes off, like in the late 1990s, uh, and you get the um, you get the protests in what Seattle, 1999, um, the insiders become globalists, and basically on the right wing, insiders and globalists are code words for Jews, but the militia movement uses sanitized words as the John Birch Society does, and it just talked about the new world order. Um, now, the Christian identity movement also believed the country was headed towards an economic collapse and a racial civil war, and both the militia movement and the Christian identity, <coughs> excuse me, movements, you know, they were into survivalism and they borrowed from the preppers, right? So when you look at movements on the right, they tend to be these movements that are apocalyptic. They believe they're in the end times or the end of the world is coming for a variety of reasons. And then they look for the secular signs uh, for the economic collapse. And so when the militias began resurging in 2004, right, under George W. Bush, um, they believe that foreign or economic, uh, uh, foreign or domestic terrorism could lead to uh, an economic collapse in addition to the Federal Reserve System. All right, let's talk about Mormon constitutionalism for a moment. You know, what is that and how did it serve as a, a kind of a bridge between the Christian right and uh, the Latter-day Patriot movement? Yeah, so, you know, you, there are three religious movements, basically, um, on the right that have to be sort of taken into account. And they have some commonalities. And Mormon constitutionalism is basically explained in a book um, by James Aho that was published in, in uh, 1990 or so. And it was the subtitle of it was on Idaho Christian patriotism. Okay. Back in Idaho in the, in the 1990s, of course, there were racist, anti Semitic Christian identity folks. And they will end up helping form the, the broader militia movement, like in 1994, 1995. But Aho says, look, 
In addition to those anti-Semitic, racist, Christian identity folks, there are Christian patriots who are not anti-Semitic or racist. And what they believe in is the organic constitution, the one that was um, uh, ratified in 1787 and the Bill of Rights that were added in 1791, right? And they believe the constitution um, is a divine document. They believe America is a divine country. Um, there's God's plan for America. And Americans, especially white Americans, are God's chosen people, um, not the Jews, right? This is in Mormon, you know, Mormon constitutionalism. They also believe that Americans uh, must choose to obey and follow God and, or, or, or obey and follow Satan. And in this sense, they're not very much different from the Christian Reconstructionists or the broader Christian right. Now, that great conspiracy that they believe in is a battle of God versus a battle of Satan. And that battle is executed on earth through the agents. So Mormon constitutionalism and the Christian right are basically on the same page as long as, as is, you know, the Christian identity folks. So they all have these certain common beliefs. They have, even if they differ in terms of who the villains are, who the enemy is, they do share like this common narrative. And that allows them to understand each other and to cooperate. They just have, you know, when, when the movement begins, when the militia movement begins in 1994, you know, the Christian identity folks go, hey, we can agree on like about 10 things, but there's one thing we can't, we can't agree on. We're just not going to do it. So they said, look, we could find commonality. And the and Christian right, when they form uh, in the 1980s, they go, look, the Pentecostals and the Charismatics and the Evangelicals and the Fundamentalists, they all have these disagreements, including, you know, conservative Jews and conservative Catholics. They all have these theological disagreements. But let's put all those theological disagreements aside and work together and build the kingdom. And that's where we're at. So it branches off in terms of, you know, the anti-Semitism gets toned down. Um, obviously, for you know the Christian identity folks, they are just openly anti-Semitic, right? Jews are really the spawn of the devil. But when you get to the Christian right and the New World Order, eh, they're satanic agents. And that, the Jews have sort of been subsumed in this satanic agent uh, kind of rhetoric. Um, and it's not like, but, but, I was going to remember, Pat Robertson, when he wrote the book on the New World Order, borrowed anti-Semitic sources and put it in there. Now, I wanted to, you know, add one thing, because this is going to come up later, you know, when you talk about the Battle of Bunkerville and, and everything that's going on, you know, Ken Ivory and stuff like that, is, is take the concept of county su supremacy, right? Now, many people will argue that county supremacy or the supremacy of the county sheriff comes from posse comitatus, which is the Christian identity, um, armed wing of the Christian identity movement. And so the concept of the constitutional sheriff or the county supremacy is inherently racist and anti-Semitic. But the Mormons have the same sort of idea. You know, the Mormon prophet uh, Ezra Taft Benson uh, who I think was a president of the LDS. 
Certainly yeah, he was, I believe, the, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. correct. So he was like a president. So he believed there were three levels of legitimate government in the United States, right? He believed in the county, he believed in the state, and he believed in the federal government. And he believed, and, and W, what's his name, Cleon Skousen, who was, you know. The big uh, John Bircher, among other things. Yeah, the, right, basically the John Bircher who was, you know. In, Author uh, of The Naked Capitalist. Right. But he was he was he was sort of like their constitutional expert, you know, you know, in, in, in quotation marks. Right. Oh, so yeah. Didn't, really, he, didn't he start like the Freedom School or something yeah, like that? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. He goes. So he starts. <coughs> sorry. So he starts the Freeman Institute. And that becomes the National Center for Constitutional Studies. And that becomes the um, distributor, the main distributor of interpretations of the U.S. Constitution for the Tea Party movement, right? So the Mormons have this idea that the county is the fundamental level of government. And, you know, Benson argues uh, that way and Skousen argues that way. Now, the Christian Reconstructionists, they also come at it from a very similar perspective, Right. So they they place a great deal of emphasis on um, county or local officials or even state officials. Okay, so in 1983, Gary North, again, he's the he's one of the political strategists. He he edits a book called The Theology of Christian Resistance. Right. So how do you make resistance to the federal government biblical? Right. Morally legitimate. And he includes a chapter in this book um, that's derived from John Calvin on the doctrine of lesser magistrates. And what they do is the argument of this doctrine of lesser magistrates is individuals have no right to resist tyranny, okay, in the United States. You have no right to do that. Who does have the right to do it are the lesser magistrates who could be um, county supervisors, it could be the county sheriff, it could be the governor. They are to lead the resistance. They're supposed to place themselves between the individuals and the federal government, right? So you can see where this is kind of going, that you know, everybody's got an idea that the county officials and state governors are really, really important. And so there's some that argue that well, when you reduce all these lesser magistrates down to just the county sheriff, that it's really barring from posse comitatus. But if you go back to, to Benson again, Benson explains, he's explaining the origin of government. And he goes, look, out in the West, you have these citizens, which are really settlers, okay? And they come into a community, and the first thing they do is they hire a sheriff. And he goes, when they hire a sheriff, that is the origin of government. So obviously, you know, even though he doesn't say it, it's obvious that, that, that um, Benson sees the sheriff as a supreme authority at the county level, you know, because he's hired by the settlers and he provides a defense. And then Benson's idea of government, of course, is that the only thing that go the government can do is defense. There's no such thing as redistributing wealth and, you know, other things like that. So the Mormons, Christian Reconstructionists, and the Christian Identity folks all have this common idea that the, that the county sheriff is really 
an important figure for leading resistance. There may be some slight differences across these movements, but that doesn't mean when somebody like Cliven Bundy or Richard Mack, who are, who are, who are Mormons, are talking about county supremacy, we're talking about constitutional sheriffs or the supremacy of the, of the, of the county sheriff, that doesn't mean they're anti-Semitic and racist because there are Mormon sources and Christian reconstruction sources to, to argue against that. Well, if I could interject here for a moment too, sure. um, I also think that there was probably a rather cynical reason why certain uh, Mormon church officials took this line around, uh, the, I think it was around the 50s or 60s when this stuff started to become really big. And uh, that had to do with the church's uh, rather ambiguous relationship with the numerous uh, fundamentalist Mormon sects uh, that practice polygamy. Um, now, of course, the LDS uh, has gone to great lengths to publicly renounce these uh, practices, but, um, you know, a lot of these sects uh, essentially live in Utah and uh, have continued to carry out um, their peculiar lifestyle without a lot of um, you know, legal consequences for many years now. And of course, you have really extreme cases such as Colorado City, uh, which is right across the border in Arizona. Uh, of course, this was the compound essentially that Warren Jeffs had established uh, by the 90s as part of the fundamentalist sect that he oversaw. And in this case, they had essentially turned the town into a full-blown theocracy, like the fundamentalist Mormon sect controlled everything, the sheriff, uh, all the local police, I mean, the, uh, the county or the local magistrates, everything. In fact, they even owned, I believe, all the houses in the entire town, which they essentially leased out or something like that to the members of the congregation. So... Uh, this uh, this obsession with this you know local self rule and you know supremacy of the county and that type of thing, I would speculate and emphasize just speculating here. A lot of that is probably a vested interest in helping some of these uh, polygamist sects uh, avoid legal entanglements, which can become problematic for the mainline church because there is a lot of intermarriage between mainstream Mormons and polygamous sex, another thing that they don't like to talk about. So um, yeah, that's uh, kind of another interesting side note. And uh, to kind of put some perspective too and how you can see these you know, circles kind of uh, overlapping by the 90s, uh, you can look at the case of the infamous serial killer, Israel Keyes. Um, Keyes was, uh, born into a family that initially were fundamentalist Mormons. Uh, they then became adherents to Christian identity theology. And by the time Israel was uh, arrested, he had become Satanist. Um, it's actually a more logical line of progression, I think uh, many people realize. But uh, nonetheless, you know, this is sort of that kind of netherworld that existed in these Western states by the 90s. And um, Israel Keys, of course, also knew the, the Chloe brothers, I think their names were, the ones that knew Timothy McVeigh. So um, there's a lot of interesting intersections with all these folks. Yeah, I mean, what you, what you bring up, you know, is, you know, once you get out West, there are so many influences swirling around um, and they're all feeding into each other and feeding off each other that it really becomes hard separating some of the stuff out until you get down to actually talking to a person, like what they actually really believe. Because all these movements are just, and religious movements are, are, are interacting with each other, you know, and they're spreading ideas back and forth and they're critiquing each other back and forth. And, you know, they're learning how to cooperate. 
which they hadn't historically cooperated. I mean, Mormons were persecuted. And now all of a sudden they're like a mainstream part of the Christian right, sort of. You know, I, so, I mean, you know, when they get when you get Mitt Romney as a presidential candidate, it's, it's about as significant as having Jack Kennedy as a Catholic candidate for president. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny, too, because Romney was actually born in Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, which, um, funnily enough, never really came up in the Republican primaries. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there's this just swirling around. And it's, it's interesting now that you ask a question, you know, to pinpoint various things and commonalities and differences. But you can see that, you know, Richard Mack, he can, he can give the same speech to uh you know, a Christian identity crowd in the 1990s, and they would understand him, even if he's using Mormon concepts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is just really fascinating to see how those two cultures have intersected. But um, well, we'll get to a little bit of that here later mm -hmm. on. Um, all right, let's talk some Edwin Vera. Vera, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, I don't know how. It's, uh, yeah, I, you know, I probably mispronounce it. I kind of say like Vieira. Vieira, but, okay. But I don't know. I really, I absolutely do not know how to pronounce his name. Okay, we'll go with Vieira for our purposes here. Okay. <laughs> uh, so he's had a considerable influence on the post 9-11 militia movement. Uh, can you break down some of his views for us, James? Yeah, you know, Vieira is one of these really interesting guys. He's really smart. And if you read his papers, I mean, they're, they're footnoted out the Yazoo. I mean, they're just good grief. With, with all these, you know, citations and stuff. He's really smart and um, he's almost cantankerous in, in, in a way um, uh, because he, he also viewed a lot of people on the right wing as being wrong. And he, in his papers, went out of his way to show how wrong they really were. Um, but he wrote a lot of papers on how the militias were to be properly organized under the constitution. And he viewed almost all of the unorganized, disorganized, and the current militias as they existed, uh, he was writing in like the mid-2000s, um, as being constitutionally suspect. Uh, and he said, you know, you guys got to get your act together. These things have to be done properly. But the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, they called him the architect of the militias uh, because he played a central role in the 2009 meeting on Jekyll Island that led to the revitalization of the Patriot Militia Movement later on. And, and though I could be wrong, um, I think he's the first who linked the need to have uh, gold and silver currencies, currencies um, for individual states as an alternative to fiat money, and also having constitutionally organized militias as necessary to prevail during a future catastrophic financial crisis. I think he's the first to do that. And he believed it's necessary to complete both actions. A state had to have gold and silver currencies and constitutionally organized militias before the crisis occurs. And this idea that he has, we'll get on maybe a little bit later, um, this idea he has goes into the Continental Congress. And then it goes, you know, through the Oath Keepers who promote him and into Ken Ivory, who's, who promotes it in Utah. Now, just to contra contrast Edwin Vieira. Now, Vieira, he wants you to produce an actual currency, gold and silver currencies. North was arguing just for the elimination of the Federal Reserve System and all central banking. 
and a gold standard, I think. But Vieira, he wrote on the purse and the sword, you know, the power of the purse and the power of the sword. And he linked a Federal Reserve system collapse with Department of Homeland suppression. And he thought that if you had an economic collapse, the political elites would use the Department of Homeland Security to maintain, uh, to stay in power. And so what he viewed, when he argued against gun control, it was gun control was an effort by the federal government to shift the balance of power or balance of military power to DHS and away from the militias, okay? So that's one argument. I mean, so he, he's a lot deeper than the, the National Rifle Association. Um, he also thought there was a right way and a wrong way for a state to secede from uh, the United States. And I suspect he wasn't the most popular strategist um, or even most widely known because his influence seemed to have been through networks. But he was a big supporter of Ron Paul, and he gets plugged into that, that whole Ron Paul network. Um, and so in 2011, uh, at least until 2014, uh, Vieira is featured in, uh, is promoted by the Oath Keepers on their blog. And they're, they're promoting his writings, they're promoting his DVDs, they're including him in DVDs that they're putting out, or you know, they're not producing, other people are producing, but they're featuring Edwin Vieira. So his ideas are being spread through these DVDs and promotion by the, uh, by the Oath Keepers and through Ron Paul's promotion of uh, the Continental Congress. So that's where his, that's where his influence, I think, I think happened. He, he was a, a, a deep thinker, and he managed to spread his ideas through other people and other networks. Now, Vieira's uh, ideals really started to gain traction around 2008, which was right in the midst of the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, now, there were two uh, right-wing movements that started to emerge. Oh, did you have something to say, James? No, 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 I was coughing. Okay, okay. Uh, that emerged around then as well. Uh, one would be the Tea Party movement, and the other is uh, commonly referred to, I guess, as the Patriot movement. Uh, do you want to give us a brief overview of those, please? Yeah, I just want to. I just want to preface, you know, the, the 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 Tea Party and the Patriot movement, you know, like in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, by a, a chunk of history that sort of gets omitted. You know, we think everything happens when Obama comes into power, and we tend to forget that the militias really start in 2004. And they come into, they come into roaring back to life in 2005. And, our, and it's really interesting. If you look at the Southern Bible Law Center, they don't really call them militias, you know, like border groups or, you know, nativist groups. But you get these anti-immigrant anti militias, you know, going down to the border or protecting, you know, cornfield in Iowa, um, you know, from immigrants uh, in 2004, 2005. And they're going to the Canadian border, they're going to the Mexican border, and they're going to stop, you know, the stop the quote, stop the invasion of immigrants. And this movement then spreads into the, you know, small cities and suburbs, right? And I bring this up because this is like, 
first time in a long time that there's a, a mobilization of conservatives and conservative Christians, you know, in, in like rural small town America. And this sets the stage for the Tea Party movement to, to take off. And, you know, in 2005, they sink George W. Bush's immigration reform that had bipartisan support. I mean, he had Ted Kennedy and, and John McCain signed on to Im immigration reform. And this, these border militias and the, this white nationalist John Tanton uh, anti-immigration movement, they sink immigration reform in 2005. And by 2009, it's basically dead, even though it can come back, you know, sort of alive. But you can't pass... You can't pass immigration reform now with 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 the uh, with with the, the Republican Party. So when the financial crisis hits, you know, in 2008, you know, Bush and the GOP elite are already ideologically suspect, you know, in small town America. And so the Tea Party movement, which is effectively a, a subsidiary of the Christ, Christian right, they jettison the cultural issues of abortion and gay rights, and they concentrate on the extreme libertarian message of the Christian Reconstructionists, the Christian right, and the libertarian strains of Ron Paul and, and, and the Koch brothers. And they attack both the mainstream Republican Party to get rid of the rhinos, uh, the, the Republicans in name only, and the new Obama administration on taxes, spending, and deficits. And there are no there there large nationwide pro, um, protests. You know, gain the attraction of neo Nazis, Klan's members, League of the South people, you know, white nationalists who um, interact with them at these protests. Uh, and try to, you know, <clears throat> engage them, to, to indoctrinate them, uh, which is the same thing that happened in the anti-immigration movement. And the Oath Keepers are also involved in this. They see the Tea Party movement, and they get involved in trying to indoctrinate them into the New World Order, um, gun rights, you know, and, and things like that. And so what you have is the Tea Party movement is conservative and conservative Christians being mobilized on economic issues. You have Oath Keepers starting up. They're organized on gun rights and resisting federal tyranny. And both of those movements are coming together really under the Christian right. Uh, with, of course, in the West, a strong influence from the Mormon church or, you know, Latter-day Saints church, and with a lot of money from billionaires, specifically the Koch brothers. And when did these movements really start to embrace Vera's uh, ideals? Embrace Vera's ideas? Yeah, Vera's, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, the Tea Party movement comes about in 2009, right? And in early 2009, Ron Paul and his buddy, Bob Schultz of We the People uh, Foundation, <clears throat> they put together the Jekyll Island meeting, right, in Georgia. And they're planning a Continental Congress. I put Continental Congress in lowercase quotation marks. This is not really a Continental Congress. 
but they want to go back to the founding fathers. You don't know, pretend they're they're revolutionaries. Actually, they are revolutionaries. They're not pretending they're revolutionaries. They are revolutionaries. Jekyll Island so, too was uh, also where the Federal Reserve, the agreement for the Federal Reserve, was reached. I think in 1913 or something like right. that too. So it's a bit of a history with that also. Right. So you know, we get to Vieira's ideas. So Vieira's part of this Jekyll Island meeting in May 2009. Then in November 2009, there's this Continental Congress. And it's Vieira's ideas that are debated at this Continental Congress and that are put into action. Okay. So one of the ideas... You know, I, and I was looking at this morning and I realized, you know, I knew, but I had forgotten that, um, you know, one of the action items out of it, remember, was a state ought to have gold and silver currencies, right? Well, Ken Ivory, he's elected, I think, in 2010, November 2010, he gets Utah to pass and sign legislation that establishes that gold and silver are legal currencies in Utah. So nobody put Vieira's name on it, but it's clear that Vieira has this influence, you know, by through the Continental Congress uh, of getting things passed uh, in a variety of states. So Utah wasn't the only state. I think there were a couple others uh, that did it. And then you get the, the Oath Keepers promoting his, 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 his writings and his videos, and you get this Continental Congress thing. So he, 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 they embrace his ideas even if they don't realize uh, who it is. And when I say they, I mean the rank and file, you know, the people who show up for meetings. They probably have never heard of Edwin Vieira. They have never probably seen the power, power of the purse and the power of the sword. But you can almost bet Ken Hyper did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we'll get to Mr. Ivory in a minute. He is a fascinating yeah. figure with uh, some very fascinating family connections as well. Uh, but let's get into uh, Ron Paul's 2008 presidential campaign, which was so crucial to all this and uh, what I believe you've dubbed the North Paul strategy. Okay, so, yeah, the North Paul strategy is a semi-secret strategy, right? And... There were phase one and phase two. So phase one was Ron Paul running for president. And out of that, he gets this, he was, he was like, you know, he was really successful in terms of uh, being on the digital side of campaigning, right? So he was collecting huge emailing lists and he was collecting a lot of uh, donations online. What did they call them? Um, was it... Was it Rand bombs or something like that? I, you know, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember whatever. that. Oh, yeah, Ron bombs or something. Yeah, Ron bombs, you know, whatever it was. He was raging phenomenal amounts of money online, which really hadn't been done before. So that was phase one. And then phase two was Gary North. And what he said was, look, if you put together these email lists and these donors and we start organizing them, at the local level and start educating them at the local level, we can actually produce a movement, which becomes one segment of the Tea Party movement in 2009. Um, and we can, in the future, when there's this crisis, we can, at the local level, contest the territorial claims and the legitimacy of the federal government. 
And he said, we can do this openly and secretly. Um, and nobody's going to pay attention to, for us doing it. And we'll create these uh, various organizations and we'll use these organizations to achieve very specific uh, results. And that was the North, the, the North Pole strategy, was to take this presidential campaign, produce a movement, which would be the Tea Party movement, and then produce a number of organizations that were actually going to implement this strategy, and they were going to contest the, the, the legitimacy and the territorial claims of the federal government. It is a revolutionary movement, and, and this is what we're facing you know, now today. Yeah, it is really interesting just to see uh, how crucial, I mean, that Ron Paul presidential campaign was, uh, you know, I'd really forgotten about it, but it was such a big step in um, online strategies as well. I mean, of course, everybody tends to focus on um, Obama's campaign from 08. I mean, it was one of the first time, I think it actually was the first major presidential campaign where social media played a significant role. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, Ron Paul's campaign obviously had some innovations there too, especially for Republicans. <laughs> Um, okay, so before we get to the Oath Keepers proper, uh, take us through some of the other militant groups that came out of the Paul campaign. Okay, so the, we, we just went over like the basics of the North Paul strategy. So one of the, the, the four things that come out of the campaign um, that North was talking about. So none of these are accidental. And only one of them, only one, one of them I had to find uh, because it wasn't mentioned by North. Um, but he mentioned specifically a homeschooling project, right? And he was going to do that with nullification advocate and secessionist proponent Thomas Woods. So he's looking into the future, right? He says, oh, we got about 10 years before we really have to confront the federal government. So what's the first thing we got to do? One of the first things we got to do is, is we have to educate the people with a homeschooling uh, curriculum, right? So they can learn all these um, you know, nullification and secession and how to contest the, the legitimacy of the federal government. Then he says, we have to replace the, um, the Republican Party with our own precinct captains. So they're going to form the National Precinct Alliance to capture the Republican Party. Then the third thing that comes out of it, and this is where I had to trace, you know, the, the, the individuals, right? So how does this get back to the how does this get back to the Ron Paul campaign was uh, the first thing was Richard Max save our sheriff and the sheriff pro, uh, sheriff project. And that eventually becomes his constitutional sheriffs and peace officers association, which is aligned with Oath Keepers and is the vehicle for putting militias under the constitutional sheriff as their posse. OK, so you can already see in the strategy of how we're going to put these how are we going to put the armed wing under control, right? And so they're going to put it under the constitutional sheriff, who's a lesser magistrate. And then the last thing that comes out is, of course, Stuart Rhodes, and that is Oath Keepers itself. And Oath Keepers is like a backbone organization for this new kind of militia where they can network the Tea Party guys and the militia guys and, you know, operate at the local level. And, you know, this is the strategy. This is what this is what North and Ron Paul were doing, and it's consistent with 
what William Lind was doing, what Paul Weyrich had been doing, you know, the Christian Reconstructions had been planning for a long time. This is a long strategy, long-term strategy. Now, besides the militant ones, there were a few other somewhat less radical uh, movements that came out of the Paul campaign. Uh, one was dedicated to homeschooling and the other was dedicated to nullification. Uh, what were the, the relationships with some of these movements, the more militant groups? Um, what were the relations between some of the more militant groups? Yeah, to some of the movements like for homeschooling and nullification and that type of well, thing. Okay, so the homeschooling was going to be done by Thomas Woods, right? So Thomas Woods comes out of the, the, the whole nullification secessionist ideas of the neo-Confederates, all right? So if you look at these movements in terms of like personnel, that's my phone in the background. No, let me, let me turn it off so you don't get this constant buzzing. Um, you know, Ron Paul is a bridge figure between the Christian Reconstructionists and the Christian right. Okay. And, you know, Gary North, the son-in-law of Rush Duty, I mean, that's an obvious avenue into the Christian right. And then he has Thomas Woods who's going to do his homeschooling program. And Thomas Woods is an academic, and he's also a conduit into um, the neo-Confederate the neo movement. But Ron Paul, if you look at him, he was also considered by the neo-Nazis to be a friendly. You know, David Duke and Stormfront in 2008 were raising money for his campaign. And Ron Paul didn't give any money back when people said, hey, how can you take money from Stormfront? And he goes, well, you know, it's like money. So the idea of nullification, you know, we think of it as a neo-Confederate idea, but it's not. In, in 1996, the Catholic Journal First Things was advocating nullification of Supreme Court decisions uh, in order to provoke a constitutional crisis. So, you know, these ideas are from the fringe or from a specific movement, and then they just get dispersed into the general right wing. And what we're witnessing now is not the fringe with extremist ideas attacking the center. We're seeing fringe ideas promoted by the Republican Party and the Christian right attacking the legitimacy of a secular constitution and an economically shaky neoliberal uh, economic regime. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, it's rather Machiavellian, certainly. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the thing of it is, is, you know, they are, they, they don't hide that they are a radical revolutionary movement, right? They don't hide it. If you call them on it, they deny it, but they put it out there. I mean, I'm not, I didn't have to dig very far, you know, to get this stuff, but they're not taken seriously. I mean, people, you know, for decades have just not, well, we don't want to talk about people's religion kind of idea, you know? So they, they, they came up with a great way of hiding stuff. Well, that is often the uh, case with fringe movements. Uh, they're not taken seriously uh, until it's too late, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, so let's briefly touch on this coalition's efforts to remake the Republican Party and drive out the so-called rhinos. Yeah, so if you take the Christian right, <coughs> right? The Christian right, basic, basic idea in the New World Order, Pat Robertson, is what's going on in politics is a cosmic battle of good versus evil, Right. And good is God, evil is Satan. And the Christian right is obviously on the side of God. 
the Democrats are on the side of Satan. And so everybody Democratic or, you know, liberal or secular is an agent, agent of Satan. Right. And that's that's a dividing line. And so you're going to force Republicans going back to Rush Dooney. Uh, are you on the side of God or are you on the side of man? OK, so if you're a Republican, you know, a country club Republican, you believe in like, you know, well, we can compromise on this. But, you know, we can, we can pass this kind of legislation, and that kind of legislation. You're going to get driven out of the party because basically they've said you're an agent of Satan. They, they scare the heck out of these people. So the other thing that happens is any number of scholars, but, you know, uh, Sam Tannenhouse in 2010 in his book, The Death of Conservative, argued that if you look at left-wing politics as basically a politics of consensus, and if you look at right-wing politics, it's a, policy, it's a politics of orthodoxy. And he argued that the, the, the primary dynamic in American politics were these two types of politics orthodoxy versus consensus. And if you look at um, political science past 2010, it's obvious that a number of political scientists see the Republicans as rejecting the legitimacy of the federal government, rejecting the legitimacy of the Democratic Party, uh, engaging in constitutional hardball um, tactics, you know, that make government really difficult. And the winking toleration of political violence. You know, you could get any number of Republicans to say they're opposed to violence, but they didn't. They did nothing to stop anti-abortion violence. You know, anti-abortion violence stops because you have a, a Republican president, not because the Republican Party has done anything. So they give a, a you know a, a sort of wink, wink and a nod to to political violence as long as it as long as it's um, not too uh, murderous, but as long as it's small scale, they can, they can tolerate that. They can, they can live with that. And so if it stands to reason that a political party that is driven by orthodoxy, appealing to authoritarian Christians, having a apocalyptic worldview and viewing its political opponents as either traitors or satanic agents, you know, is not going to tolerate dissenters, heretics, and apostates, right? So the, the Tea Party movement used secular economic issues, but the right-wing movement advocates have used immigration issues, they've used abortion and gay rights issues, they've used church-state issues, they've used the teaching of creation and intelligent design. They use various issues to put Republicans at the local, state, and federal level um, to the sword. To basically say, are you with God or are you with Satan? All right. So let's uh, finally start getting into the Oath Keepers proper here. <laughs> so um, sorry, folks, I know it was a bit of an introduction here, but there's a lot of fascinating history that led up to the creation of the Oath Keepers. Hmm. But uh, first off, though, now that we're at the subject at hand, uh, let's get into the background of Stuart Rhodes. Uh, can you get in a little bit to his military career and his pre-2008 activities, please? Yeah, so, sorry for coughing. So, he was in the Army at a very young age, and his highest rank was an E4, which, and he was a specialist, okay, so he wasn't, he, he, he never made sergeant. Uh, he graduated from Airborne School in 1983, 
he completed the first phase of the special forces course, um, but he doesn't say in his biography why he didn't stay. That's kind of curious. But anyway, in 1985, he was medically discharged from the army after having been in, uh, injured, uh, making a night jump with the 9th Infantry Division, where he was a, a long-range reconnaissance scout. So his military background's, you know, pretty basic. I mean, very short time, uh, a few years, uh, low rank, E4, and didn't deploy anywhere, just went to Washington, Fort Benning. And that was it. So after, after the Army in May 1998, he graduated from the University of Nevada at Las Vegas with a BA in political science. He graduated from Yale Law School in June 2004. Um, he held a variety of jobs in public and private law offices. Some of them were interns, some were clerks, some were he was actually paid. Um, he's a Apparently, a very good writer. He won, a, he won an award for a paper um, uh, on, on enemy combatants. And he said in one of his uh, resumes, uh, from May 2007 to January 2008, he was the counsel for the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe of Indians. Uh, he lectured uh, for a course at Stanford and Yale. Um, but, you know, if you look at his resume, and this is what he, you know, obviously he put together. Um, he doesn't stay anywhere for any appreciable amount of time. You know, he's there for a few months, maybe a year, um, as my memory recalls. And he's just, he's there for a very short time. It's really a strange kind of resume. Just bounces from one to the to the He's making progress, but he's not staying anywhere for any long time. And then in April 2007, begins uh, writing for uh, SWAT magazine. So that's basically his, his background. Um, before he um, starts the uh, um, starts Oath Keepers. Now, as I recall, though, there's not a lot about what he was up to after he uh, was discharged from the army, and like what about the mid '90s uh, when he started attending school again, or something to that effect, right? Yeah, I mean, he talks about he was a sculptor for a few a years. Sculptor? Yeah, he, he, I think from the, like 93 to 95 or something, uh, he's a sculptor. Um, he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't seem to be politically active in anything. He's, he seems like, um, you know, a guy who's dedicated to getting his education, you know, doing the right jobs, working in public interest law firm or public defender law firm and clerking for a judge. I mean, he's doing all the things you would do to be successful. I'm not, I wouldn't take anything away from him, but it's not very clear what's, what's actually, what he's actually thinking uh, until he gets um, uh, hooked up with Ron Paul. All right. So how did he become involved with the Ron Paul campaign? Well, I don't know specifically how he gets involved. That's a really interesting question. I don't know how he becomes a staffer in the Ron Paul house office, but he's there for, again, he's only there for a short time. He's there from June, 1998 to February of 1999. That's it. And then he's gone. And then the next thing you know is eight years later in November, 2007, he's making um, two $500 donations to the Ron Paul campaign. 
right, the presidential campaign. And um, Gary North had also been a, a Ron Paul staffer back in 1976. So North's relationship with Ron Paul goes back decades. Um, North was there for what, six months? June, February, seven, eight months maybe. And then uh, he shows up on the radar for Ron Paul eight years later uh, doing donations. And then he's, he's um, you know, back on the presidential staff, you know, presidential campaign staff. You know, it's interesting that he had hooked up with Paul in the 90s because um, Paul certainly was not a very well-known figure at that era. He really didn't start to get a lot of national spotlight, I think, until the middle of the knots or something like that. So, um... yeah, I mean, Ron Paul was a fringe of the fringe character. You know, I mean, he was based out of Texas, too, which makes it even a little stranger that uh, Stuart Rhodes would have turned in on him. I mean, why, you know, the only thing I can imagine is that is that is that Rhodes was probably an extreme libertarian. And Ron Paul would be close to that that viewpoint. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Now, uh, the Oath Keepers made good use of pre-existing networks to build up their membership circa 2009. Uh, What were some of the methods uh, and how did the Oath Keepers hitch their cards to them? Well, you know, one of the things that people um, don't maybe don't realize about, about the right wing especially in DC, but I think the right wing in general, is that um, many movement conservatives and Christian right people, despite their belligerent rhetoric and policies, have never actually served in the, in the military, right? So they're like the chicken hawks who you know, want to send the military all over the planet, uh, but have never served in the military themselves, which means that a a, a Stuart Rhodes with the airborne patch, right? And recruiting from active duty, um, retired and former, you know, military veterans is going to have a sort of cachet about him, you know, sort of like a, <coughs> sorry, sort of like a charisma about him that, you know, people can't dispute. Right. So he, you know, he's he plays into this weakness that's on the right wing. That very few people in the military, very few people on the right wing um, have actually served in the military. And, and I was going to say that, you know, I live in, in, in Pensacola, Florida, right, which is Matt Gates's congressional district. So this is a really conservative area. But if you go to the Blue Wahoos game, it's a local minor, uh, local minor league team. You know, and they play the Star Spangled Banner at the beginning of the game, and veterans can stand up and salute the flag, right, where everybody else has their hand over the heart. But very few veterans are actually in the crowd. Most people in this conservative crowd have never been in the military. So he, he, he plays on that issue. Right. So he with with the airborne badge and recruiting other veterans and active duty folks, he comes with it like, you know, uh, a charisma that they that they don't have or um, uh, what would you say um, a character that they don't have. Now, 
because Stuart Road comes out of the Ron Paul campaign in 2008. Ron Paul is connected to the Christian right. Ron Paul is connected to um, the neo-Confederate movement. Ron Paul is connected to the secessionists. He's connected to uh, white nationalists, right? So Gary North can put him in touch with the Christian right. Rhodes has the ability to connect with a lot of big movements and a lot of important people behind um, the scenes that he can he can talk to uh, and he can network with. And so while he's a nobody, I mean, really, I mean, you look at his resume, he's a political nobody in 2009. And yet. He's he's connected to a lot of political somebodies. Okay, that can connect him to other other big movements. And the other way that he distinguished themselves from all these other right wing groups that were available is the first thing he does is goes, we're not a militia. Right. So he's trying to put that craziness uh, aside. And then, of course, he says we're recruiting active duty, retired military and law, law enforcement. And. As he's portraying all the things that they're going to do um, to resist federal tyranny, the only person who actually nails Stuart Rhodes in an interview about what it is that he's doing happens to be Chris Matthews in an interview. And he says, you know, you're basically defending a state's right to secede from the United States. That's what this is all about. And it makes sense because he comes out of Ron Paul. You know, Ron, he comes out of the Ron Paul presidential campaign. And Ron Paul had been talking about secession for decades, right? And if you remember, um, you, and you probably remember really well, you know, when, uh, what's his name, uh, Governor Prairie from Texas, um, you know, he wants to, he wants Texas to secede, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Oath Keepers is tapping into a lot of ideological veins and a lot of, a, a lot of ideological movements. And the other thing that, that, that Oath Keepers could tap into um, that, you know, progressives sort of forget were existing. For example, there was still the, the, the anti-environmental movement, which was called the wise use movement, started by the Christian, uh, started by the Christian right. He could connect in the West with the Reagan era, era you know, county supremacy movement that was among, you know, the Western um, county commissioners. He could connect with Larry Pratt and Gun Owners of America and the absolutist gun rights movement, which they do. Um, and he could connect with the 3% movement that was founded by Mike Vandenberg. And he could connect with the um, John Tanton movement, the white nationalist anti-immigration movement. So he could, because of who he was situated with, he had access to a lot of different movements that he could network and, 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 and attach um, the Oath Keepers with or to. Now, what are some of the ties between the Oath Keepers and Ron Paul's Continental Congress? Okay, so the most obvious um, tie, other than Ron Paul, um, is that um, the when they have the Jekyll Island meeting in May of 2009, um, there's an Oath Keeper named Eric Cunningham, who's representing the Oath Keepers at the meeting. And Oath Keepers had just come out in February of 2009. 
So just within a couple of months, they're already invited to this Jekyll Island meeting, right? And, you know, Cunningham is part of a group, what they call the uh, leaders of the growing uh, freedom movement. Then when it comes time to uh, the actual Continental Congress, right? There's a William Taylor Reel from Pennsylvania and a David Helms from Arizona who were Oath Keepers and delegates at this Continental Congress, which is considering the writings of Edwin Vieira as civic action items, right? Now, Helms, this guy from Arizona, he's actually on the National Board of Oath Keepers. And Real, who comes from Pennsylvania, he's actually pushing the sheriff's program, which is really what ends up being Richard Mack's um, Constitutional Sheriffs and uh, Peace Officers Association. Right. So the, the Congress itself is put on by Bob Schultz and the We, we the People Foundation. Schultz is a long time, has long time times to, to Ron Paul. Ron Paul was a libertarian. Um, one of the guys that's at the Continental Congress, actually the MC or the host, you know, the, the, the guy with the gavel is a, a former libertarian presidential candidate or vice presidential candidate. So you have the you have the Constitution Party there. So there's a there's a lot of ties, and when I say constitutional party, obviously the, the link to them is through Gary North. So, you know, the Oath Keepers get plugged into these movements. And Edwin Vieira, uh, his documents are really the foundation for the Continental Congress. They're debating his action items of what the movement is going to do for the next 10 years. So yeah, that would be a fitting way for the Oath Keepers to get tied in, certainly. Um, so okay, how about the connections between the Oath Keepers and uh, Pastor Chuck Baldwin? <sighs> okay. So, <clears throat> in 2008, all right, Ron Paul runs for president, and obviously he doesn't, he's not going to get elected as a Republican. He doesn't, he doesn't win uh, the Republican primary. So he endorses Chuck Baldwin for president in 2008, okay? And Baldwin is running on the theocratic Constitution Party ticket, right? These guys are the, this is the Christian Reconstructionist um, political party. This is the political party that in the mid-90s is forming or helping form militia groups all over the country. This is the, this is who Ron Paul endorses in 2008. Now in 2004, um, Chuck Baldwin was the Constitution Party's vice presidential candidate. In the 1990s, Baldwin had actually been a pastor in Pensacola at the Crossroads Baptist Church. He was a radio talk show host. He was a militia proponent and he was an ardent anti-abortionist. Right. And in the time, and I'm not saying that Baldwin's responsible, but at the time in Pensacola in the 1990s was a very violent period where at least one doctor was murdered and the abortion clinic was firebombed once or twice. So you know, this was a hotbed of, 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 of violence and Baldwin was in the center of it. So in 2013, Baldwin. Uh oh. In 2013, uh, Baldwin became the um, 
national, cha uh, national chaplain of Oath Keepers. And between tw 2007 and 2013, as best I can tell, he was involved in promoting something called the Black Regiment, which was recruiting pastors into supporting a, a revolution. Now, of course, there was also uh, another uh, movement that emerged around the same time all of these uh, different things, the Tea Party and so forth, were going on, uh, though it was a little bit more progressive leaning, certainly. It was known as Occupy Wall Street. So, James, how did the Oath Keepers approach Occupy? Okay. <clears throat> Initially, uh, Oath Keepers endorsed the uh, Occupy Wall Street notion of the 99% against the 1%. But Oath Keepers um, infiltrated Occupy Wall Street in order to promote the Ron Paul idea of ending the Fed, right? And at the same time Oath Keepers was doing that, Spencer Sunshine, a sociologist, noted that other right-wing groups were also trying to infiltrate um, Occupy Wall Street for whatever purposes, uh, to destroy it, to, to derail it, uh, undermine it, whatever, or to influence it. Uh, but that was LaRouche groups, neo-Nazi groups, white nationalist groups. You know, so a whole bunch of groups were trying to get into Occupy Wall Street. But the Oath Keepers had a specific mission, and that was to get <coughs> excuse me, the uh, Ron Paul and the Fed thing uh, uh, passed. And of course, they wanted to influence uh, Occupy Wall Street into an extreme libertarian economic agenda, which is not what Occupy Wall Street was really about. So that's, that's, that was their approach to Occupy Wall Street. Um, I'm not sure how successful it was. I know Dave Troy is working on uh, this infiltration issue. And so I'm looking forward to reading what he's got to say about it because he's been going really in depth into it. Oh yeah, no, I just actually did a show on Occupy with Dave and um, um, Desiree Kane that uh, actually will probably be up the week before this one uh, is. So yeah, there was uh, definitely a lot of interesting actors at play uh, in the case of the Oath Keepers. I think their whole thing was Occupy the Fed. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was uh, lots of... Uh, yeah, murkiness and that whole thing. <laughs> All right, let's uh, get into the concept of the, I love this term, the civilization preservation teams. <laughs> this was uh, this was their kind of sneaky way of getting around being labeled a militia, I suppose. Yeah. So what of these civilization preservation teams, James? Yeah, you would think uh, civilization preservation teams um, would prevent you to go back from the, to the Stone Age or something. Uh, well, it's, like, it's almost like a Star Trek type thing, you know? Uh, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like really, it's like fantasy, you know, you're going to preserve civilization. But what they really meant, and then I think they changed the name. Uh, they got some pushback on it. It went from civilization preservation to what, community preservation or something like that or yeah, whatever. But anyway. So in, in 2013, October 2013, they launched this um, civilization preservation team uh, based on the premise uh, that we've already talked about, you know, the great collapse is coming, right? And um, because I think one of the reasons, uh, because um, uh, Stuart Rhodes had passed only the first phase of the special forces class, uh, of course, um, these civilization preservation teams 
were based on the Special Forces A-Team or Detachment Alpha concept, which is basically 12 guys uh, with very specific um, military specialties, you know, going into an area to um, create a resistance. Okay. So um, Oath Keepers perceive themselves as going into local American communities in order to create a local res uh, resistance to an oppressive regime, all right? Uh, and to do disaster preparation, which of course is the kind that FEMA already does uh, through their CERT, CERT teams, right? But you're absolutely correct that it was the first time that Oath Keepers had really identified themselves as a militia and a fighting force. Up until then, they had not done this. But this is the first time they do it. And U.S. News and World Report said that these um, preservation teams uh, were going to, quote, uh, help, okay, quote, draft and introduce militia bills, posse bills, um, nullification bills, among other items to support liberty. And in fact, if you think about it, they're going to do exactly what Gary North had articulated um, back in 2007 uh, in the North Pole strategy. So in January 2008, we already touched upon this, but there's some really interesting things um, that we didn't quite touch on. That, that had to be done. And so in 2008, he publishes a secret part of the strategy. You know, it's the homeschooling, the National pre, pre, uh, Precinct Alliance, constitutional sheriffs that put the militias under their, into the posse, and the Oath Keepers are the glue that holds this thing all together. And so what North argued, he said, and this is, quote, when the checks from Washington no longer buy much, there will be a monumental political transformation. The primary goal is to get positioned locally with numerous officials to present a united front against the federal government when it begins to falter. When the Fed's money buys nothing, the hardcore needs to be influential locally to block all attempts of the Feds to impose controls over the local economy. And this has been known historically as the doctrine of inter position. So you can see that the, the North, the, the, the Ron Paul, Gary North strategy, the Edwin Vieira uh, articles that, uh, you know, that come out of the Continental Congress are all basically in the civilization preservation team. And what they're going to do in the time of the Great Collapse, they're going to contest uh, the territorial control and the legitimacy of the federal government. And consistent with what we talked about earlier with the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. This is going to be the sheriff putting the, you know, because uh, the Oath Keepers are talking about in the preservation team, the militias are going to be put under the sheriff, the constitutional sheriff, and this is how it's, this is how the resistance is going to be organized. So, you know, this is a long-term strategy we see, and it, it could still be there. All right. Inevitably, the Oath Keepers follow fourth generation warfare. Now, they have an interesting concept in regards uh, in regards to it, which they've dubbed uh, David and Goliath. So could you get into that a bit for us, James, and how it plays into these uh, these civilization preservation teams? Yeah. So we've already seen in the Gary North strategy the fourth generation warfare strategy embedded in it, right? You're going to contest the legitimacy of the federal government. And Gary North was very familiar in 2004 with William Lynn's writings on fourth generation warfare. 
right? And he actually used Lynn's writings to explain um, Osama bin Laden's strategy, which was actually kind of curious because there was a al-Qaeda strategist who was using William Lynn's writings to inform Osama bin Laden's strategy, right? So, you know, they, the Oath Keepers are absorbing like secondhand a great deal of information about fourth generation warfare from people who are around them like Gary North. So in 2008, Gary North using fourth generation warfare says, you know, the central issue is legitimacy and the supreme goal is to undermine the legitimacy enjoyed by the central state, right? So that's what they're going to do. Now, into that concept is David and Goliath. And it, it comes from um, William Lind in his uh, first field manual um, on fourth generation warfare. Now, we all know um, the story of David and Goliath, right? And we understand that David was the weaker opponent but he was a highly moral opponent. He was also uh, on the side of the Israelis or the Israelites, and he, thus, thus he was on the side of God. And Goliath was large, a brute, and he was on the side of not God. So we understand, you know, when we use this concept, and when Oath Keepers use the concept of David and Goliath, that kind of struggle, we kind of know which side we're on. We're not going to be on Goliath's side. Um, so the Oath Keepers cast this as you need to be, and borrowing, I think, from, from William Lind, is you have to be small, you have to be nimble, you have to be moral, uh, use force sparingly, but you can use force. And that's the essence of a David and Goliath strategy. If you're Goliath, you're a large force, you've got a big fingerprint, a footprint rather. Um, you may use violence indiscriminately or widely, and you delegitimize yourself. And that's what the struggle, you know, uh, is that what they're trying to capture with the David Goliath um, uh, analogy. All right. Um, I want to get, uh, I want to start getting into the centerpiece of the discussion, the Battle of Bunkerville. Now, this event has a very deep background. In fact, it's considered to be the third Sagebrush Rebellion. The second one is most relevant to our discussion. So, how about the American Legislative Executive Council? and the so-called Cowboy Caucus of the 1990s. How did they set the stage for the Second Sage Bush Rush Rebellion, James? Okay, so Paul Weyrich <clears throat> founded the American Legislative, uh, exec American Legislative Exchange Council, okay? And he is the same Christian, Christian right strategist who helped form the entire Christian right in the 1980s, or at least by the, by the mid-1980s. He founded the Heritage Foundation. He co-founded the Council for National Policy. He was instrumental in forming the moral majority. And so ALEC, or the American Legislative Exchange Council, was just one more organization uh, that he created to push this Christian right agenda. And what ALEC does is they take the needs of the Christian right, 
the GOP and big business, and they translate it into model legislation. And then the model legislation is given to um, state legislators who would pass it, have their governor sign it, and it becomes, and it goes into law. Now, in the 1980s, personnel who had been formerly with the Reagan administration uh, and Coors Money, who had formed the Christian right, helped launch the second um, Sage Rush Rebellion. And a Alec is involved in it. The Heartland Institute, Heartland Institute is involved. And both remain active in the 1990s and, and even to the current day. I mean, both Alec and Heartland Institute are in the climate change denial uh, that, that exists today. So Alec in this entire time is attacking environmental re uh, regulations. It's attacking the entire, uh, Endangered Species uh, Act. And it's also pushing for uh, county, county control over um, public lands. And it's, it's backing uh, ranchers um, in battling with the Bureau of Land Management. Um, and those sorts of issues. So, I mean, they're they're in the, the forefront of it, but they're not the only ones doing it because the Christian right had formed uh, the wise use movement to oppose the environmental movement. They had the militia patriot movement, uh, which could violently oppose the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest, the U.S. Uh, Forest and Park Service. Um, so you can see a dual track, almost a, a triple track of, of legal actions, um, movement actions, and violent actions, okay? But the entire thing, and, and this is going back to your, you know, your question about Occupy Wall Street, the entire thing that Oath Keepers is involved with and Alec is involved with is, in fact, transferring hundreds of millions of acres in the West to billionaires and big business. That's what this whole thing is about. Absolutely. And that's a good segue onto our next question, which is the role that the Council for National Policy, topic that uh, listeners of the show are well familiar with, has been playing in all of these shenanigans, uh, starting with the second stage Bush rebellion. So, you know, the Council for National Policy is... I mean, obviously, people know it exists, uh, but they keep most of their activities secret or not public, um, and only some of their actions uh, you can see. But what it does is it operates at the strategic level of the of the Christian right, and it brings together uh, operational planners, uh, communication companies, um, and people with money to fund things, right? And so they decide on a strategy or a campaign to run. Like, you know, they, they, they might pick in 2004, um, let's put uh, gay rights on the ballot, right? So if you put that on the ballot, you'll get conservative Christians to come out to vote, and that would help Republican candidates win election, right? So they decide on a strategy. They decide what's going to be done. Um, they arrange the funding. And then they have the execution done by local and state groups. So they, you don't really see their fingerprints, but they're behind everything. And the Council for National Policy includes, you know, um, different movements, different groups. It, it included, includes the Tea Party movement, anti-immigration movement, Americans for Prosperity. Um, the Koch brothers have uh, a seat on the board, the executive board that runs things. 
And they have major militia groups that sometimes um, participate in, in, in their actions. And while they do everything indirect, sometimes they actually create a group. And that's where all these other participants from different movements can all come together. They did that with the Tea Party movement. Right. So they brought together the traditional Phyllis Schlafly, um, you know, uh, Eagle Forum with some other newer groups. And then they brought in the Koch Brothers, Americans for Prosperity. And then they brought in uh, the remnant of, uh, of the, the board of militia groups. So that's how they operate. But and they're always in the background. But in the tw- in the 2010s, what happens is. Alex and the Sagebrush Rebellion are pushing for local control of public lands. And they think that uh, either the county ought to run these lands or the state should be given these lands. And the argument basically, they they make this myth that the the federal government um, misled everybody uh, about these public lands, um, that they really belong to the state. And actually, they don't. If you look at the history of the West, it was the federal government that owned the West. It formed the states out of the land that the federal government owned. And when a state came into the Union, they forever gave up any rights to claiming any of these lands. Right. So the federal government gave them what they wanted to give them. So they create a state like a Nevada or a Utah. And they go, well, here's a state boundary. And oh, by the way, 60 percent of the land in the state belongs to the federal government and you have no claim on it. And so these people are trying to reverse something that everybody agreed to whenever these states came into the union. And what they do is they want to have this David and Goliath um, um narration okay so they use these these ranchers and goliath becomes the bureau of land management right and this becomes a david and goliath story of the heroic little rancher out here being crushed by the bureau of land management and that's what the story is so they want to attack the, the legitimacy and the operations of the bureau of land management and the land and bureau of land management i mean when you think about what they do and they have one of the most difficult jobs uh, in the federal government they have to manage and balance competing economic political and environmental interests uh, uh, interests who are trying to maximize their use of public lands and they're trying to balance all that. So yeah, the farm, the, the ranchers can use the public lands, uh, mining and timber companies can use public lands, but you got to protect things. Uh, you can't overgraze. And they're just trying to balance things out. The snow, what, what are the, the snow machine people? What are the people, the snowboard machines? Uh, you know, snow plows? Snow, you know, not the, you know, the people go riding on snow. Oh, the skiers? Yeah, snow skis. You know, so they're trying to balance all this stuff and make sure that everybody gets to use public lands, but that the public lands are protected from being destroyed and endangered species aren't aren't um, aren't killed. And so they they use lawsuits, they use ranchers, uh, they do these David and Goliath confrontations, and they also you know firebomb. Uh, in the 1990s, they were firebombing uh, BLM and forest service um, buildings. And in the t- 2010s, federal, federal uh, officers out in the West were, were afraid for their lives because of this domestic terrorism directed against them. 
So uh, some of the specific moves that Alec and uh, the CMP made and the run-up to the Third Sage Rebellion? Some of the specific actions? Yeah. Well, what they were pushing for, um, the, Alec was pushing through and the Koch brothers were helping fund the American Lands Council, which uh, I think they had Ken, Ken Ivory uh, as its head. So they were pushing for the county to control public lands. They were pushing for the states to reclaim these public lands from the federal government, knowing that the state and uh, state and county governments could never afford to operate these lands. They couldn't afford the firefighting. Most of the firefighting is done by, by the federal government, or at least funded by the federal government. So if the states couldn't afford it and the counties can't afford it, the lands would fall into the laps of billionaires and energy companies, uh, mining companies, and that's what they were doing. That they were pushing this at the at the county and state level, and then when the, the Bundy thing happened, you know, casting this as a, a typical um, David and Goliath struggle. All right, let's talk some Ken Ivory for a moment. We've alluded to him a bit throughout all of this. One point, he was a rising star in Utah's state legislator. Um, this guy has done a lot of interesting things in his brief career. So, uh, you want to give us a little bit of overview of Mr. Ivory, sir? Yeah. So he doesn't become a um, a Utah state representative until November 2010. Uh, he's a Mormon, and you know, obviously, he's absorbed some of the Mormon constitutionalism uh, that exists uh, in 2011. He's pushing Edwin Vieira's um, gold and silver legislation in the Utah legislature. It's passed. Utah becomes the first state to have uh, gold and silver as a legal currency. And that was, of course, a civic action that had been recommended by the Continental Congress. And from there, he moves into the Koch-funded speaking circuit um, of, the, of Americans for Prosperity. He then becomes a proponent of transferring public lands to the state. Um, by 2014, he's not the Lone Ranger here. Um, the National Republican Party is supporting the transfer of public lands to, uh, to billionaires. And in 2014, uh, state level representatives from several Western states are starting to coordinate their political demands and actions regarding such transfers and concocting you know, false histories to back their claims. Uh, by 2014, Ken Ivory, and Americans for Prosperity are making connections uh, with the Oath Keepers, uh, the constitutional sheriffs headed by Richard Mack, um, and the opponents of the Agenda 21 movement, which is like, they were like the fringe of, of the movement for a long time. And now they're being brought into this uh, public lands dispute. So eventually he becomes the head of the American Lands Council, and that organization becomes instrumental in bringing together all these Western, um, uh, Western uh, state legislators and county boards uh, to push for county control and state control. And so that's, that's basically um, his, his history and, and, and how he fits in. Well, another thing about Mr. Ivory is he has uh, some very interesting family connections as well. Uh, just to get into this a little bit, this is a piece that was published uh, in the Huffington Post uh, back in 2018. Uh, just going to go in the first three paragraphs here. Quote, Ellis Ivory, 
a retired Utah home builder and second cousin of anti-federal land representative Ken Ivory, is among the 11 people Interior Secretary Ryan Zenke has chosen to serve on a newly resurrected National Park System Advisory Board. The new members of this volunteer panel were announced this week, just days after Zinke and the Interior Department hosted Ken Ivory and members of the American Legislative Ex Exchange Council, a conservative nonprofit backed by Charles and David Koch, that advocates handing over control of federal lands to the state. Even the broad association between the Interior Department and the radical movement opposing federal land stewardship again raises questions about the seriousness of Zinke's public pronouncements on the issue. Ken Ivory, a leader of the pro-land transfer movement, is a former head of the right-wing think tank Federalism in Action's Free the Lands Project, which has argued that getting public lands out of the federal government's hands is, quote, the only big uh, the only solution big enough to tackle, quote, today's economic challenges. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> in 2012, he introduced legislation demanding all federal lands in Utah, some 300 million acres, be turned over to the state. And the bill was passed and signed into law. But the lands have remained in federal control, at least as of the rutting in 2018. I'm not sure about uh, what things are like now. Now, it's important to emphasize here that his uh, second cousin, Ellis Ivory, happens to own El um, Ivory Homes, which is the largest home builder in the entire state of Utah. Mm. So imagine that. He's, um, he's funding his, uh, his cousin here, who uh, just happens to be going around trying to get all of the federal land in Utah turned over to the uh, local state uh, counties and so forth. Though both men insisted that they, you know, barely know each other. Um, yeah, sure they don't. Well, but anyway. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, that you know, obviously, you know, when, when we get into Bunkerville and, and you know, Clive and, Bunky, Clive and Bundy being a Mormon, you know, the, the, the Latter-day Saints Church, you know, really took issue with Clive and Bundy and what he was doing. Um, what people don't realize is that the Latter-day Saints Church is a large landowner in the West. They have extensive land owning, uh, land, you know, land owning properties. So they would be a beneficiary, although they do not support this transfer of public land. Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't support polygamy either, uh, James, you know, right, they tolerate it, they tolerate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're on this uh, topic. Let's get into the role of Mormonism and all of this. I mean, the bulk of support for ALEC came from the Western states, many of which have large Mormon populations. The first formal effort to seize federal lands, which succeeded, was in Utah. The Oath Keachers featured a lot of support from the same states and featured more than a few Mormons in the ranks. As you've noted before, Cleveland Bundy is a Mormon, as were many of his supporters in the standoff. I mean, really, this seems like a major component of all of this that's been grossly overlooked yeah you know when this was going on i mean some people were writing about bundy's you know mormon background but it, it tends to be you know it, it tends to be glossed over or omitted um that the latter-day saints church is a big landowner in the west they have a big influence on on the economies in the west um, their 
political ideology, if you will, right? The Mormon constitutionalism drives a lot of the ideas that happens out in the West with these, with these Mormon ranchers and stuff. So they have an economic interest to play, but they don't formally endorse or support what Clive and Bundy was doing or the public lands um, transfer movement. They don't, they, they don't back it, although they probably back the guy, the, the, the Republicans supporting it. You know, um, if you think back in the West, the West has always had this sort of reactionary uh, politics to it, liberal politics as well as reactionary politics. So you have, you know, the silver shirts, the Klan, the posse comitatus, uh, and neo-Nazis active, but so is the church. So is the John Birch Society, which was aligned with- Well, if I could uh, interject for a moment too, you also have yeah. to remember that the Mormons have a very rich tradition of militia culture, uh, you know, in their history. I mean, going back to the, what was it, the Mormon Battalion, um, which is really essentially what conquered much of um, modern day Utah, Colorado, and I think Arizona and parts of California for the uh, federal government. So, yeah. uh, you know, they've been, they have a little bit of experience in this whole paramilitary thing going back. Yeah, they do. They do. And they also have a history of being persecuted. So, <clears throat> You know, they, they, have, they have like a dual nature to them, right? They help settle the West, displace Native Americans uh, or indigenous uh, people, um, but they also were per persecuted uh, in, early in their history. Um, and, you know, their, their views aligned with the, the John Birch Society on the right wing. Um, and... Mormons tend to see themselves, not only is America a Christian nation, they tend to see themselves as they're going to save America at the very last moment, right? So you can't omit Mormon ideas that Mormons might have as they're engaged in these protests uh, out in the West. And, you know, and so I, I, I can continuously great when, you know, somebody says, well, this idea came from posse comitatus, right? Like county sheriff. And it's like, yeah, but the guy's a Mormon and he probably got it from Mormon constitutionalism. He probably got it from the prophet uh, Benson, you know? So, they, you know, you can't label all these movements of all these people as racist or anti-Semites when they're not. And yeah, certainly it should be emphasized, you know, this connection between, you know, conservative elements in the Mormon church and uh, this really fringe right groups like the John Birch Society has existed since the late 1950s, early 1960s. Exactly. Um, so they've been engaged in this, you know, I mean, these sort of fringe right wing uh, cultures for quite a considerable amount of time. But it's interesting to point out here, too, um, the Mormon church has also done a lot to back uh, ufology as well. Um, some of the major sponsors of this, Joe Firmage, uh, Dan Marriott, uh, Brandon Fugel, they're all Mormons as well. Harry Reid, who pushed through that insane boondoggle to investigate UAPs, is also a Mormon. So um, for whatever reason, the church, not officially, but they have a lot of members who have backed these really kooky alternative movements for a while now. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> Well, I'm not Mormon, um, but 
if you you can count me in the UFO thing, in terms of, I think UFOs are exactly what they are, unidentified flying objects, right? Or unidentified, what do they call them? Unidentified aerial phenomena. You know, they're just some things that just can't be explained. Probably 90, you know, 90% can be explained, but this 10% that just can't be explained. I don't think that's a fringe idea. I think uh, the, the fringe idea is that you, you go from something is unexplained to, oh yeah, well, it came from, you know, pick a planet or, you know, pick a, pick a universe. That sort of again goes into Mormonism. I mean, in a in a certain interpretation, you could view God as actually being an alien from the planet Kolob or something like that in Mormonism. So uh, they do Mormon, have kind of. I think Mormonism. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought Mormonism, you know, starts with some sort of cosmic space battle. Yeah, essentially. And then I think, yeah, the uh, the survivors end up here on planet Earth or something exactly. like that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's already kind of baked in the whole, you know, ancient astronaut thing as well. And it's... Yeah. I mean, you know, so, I mean, when I, my first encounter with, with, um, with Mormonism was when I was in the Army in uh, the mid-70s. And uh, a friend of mine, I went away for like a few months and I came back. And he converted to Mormonism. And it was like his personality had been surgically removed. And so he said, well, can the Mormons come over and talk to you? I said, well, sure. I mean, I'm pretty fine. You know, they come over and they start going into the space thing. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> this is like a little bit too far out for me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. At least they uh, they didn't try to start selling you and Posse Comitatus ideology in the same breath. <laughs> all right, so let's get back or get to the battle of Bunkerville. Um, all right, so take us through the onset and how uh, Rhodes and the Oath Keepers became involved. Okay, so the Battle of Bunkerville is really the um, the rancher Cliven Bundy against the Bureau of Land Management, and it's trying. They're trying to portray it as David against Goliath, right? The heroic rancher being crushed by the BLM. And what happens is he's not paying his grazing fees, right? He's using public land, he's using federal land, but he refuses to pay his grazing fees. He's got, I don't know, 100 cows or so out there. And they're eating and he's not paying the fees. The BLM goes to court three times, three times they win. He owes money. He refuses to pay. So the BLM decides, well, you know, we're going to seize your cattle. Okay. You don't pay the fees. We're going to seize your cattle. Now I want your, your listeners to understand what the outcome of all this is. All right. And then we'll get into the, you know, the, the, the battle, but at the outset, you know, in 2018, a federal judge dismisses all the charges against Clive and Bundy due to the department of justice uh, withholding evidence and other misconduct and government appeals. And in 2020, 2020, the ninth court of appeals, which is a rather liberal court, um, dismisses the case with prejudice and basically claims that, you know, there was prosecutorial misconduct that is so egregious that you can't bring charges against Clive and Bundy again. And what happens is in this whole David and Goliath 
clash in the West, the Department of Justice, the uh, FBI, and the BLM make the Bundy clan into heroes, right? They go up against the Goliath and David won, all right? So they, the BLM in this battle decide, well, we're going to go seize, go seize um, Bundy's cabin. Bundy puts out a call for help, I think, on Facebook, um, and hundreds of militia people and other supporters, you know, descend on uh, Bunkerville in Nevada, and they're going to defend Clive and Bundy, and of course, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and other militia guys, as you know, no more Wacos, right, as if the federal government is going to assassinate Clive and Bundy over a bunch of cows. So the security... And, and Oath Keepers is there. So security at the Bundy Ranch is a three-ring circus. So Bundy hires his own personal security, and that's the inner ring. Right? They're, they're around the house. And then the second ring is a bunch of ad hoc militia guys, right, come from all over the country. All of them have different stories, you know, um, different backgrounds. Some of it's just concocted, you know, pseudo-veterans, whatever. And then there's the Oath Keepers. And the Oath Keepers, you know, look at the uh, the inner ring or the, the second ring of militia guys, and they're all nut jobs. And, and Rhodes decides that the safest place is to be on the third ring and do the patrol, right? So um, that's what they do. And eventually there's the armed standoff and BLM backs down, the cattle are released, and then starts the, the long legal fiasco. But the, the, the important thing that happens is, is the way the militia guys, uh, Stuart Rhodes and Mike Vandebo, who's the founder of the 3% movement, have started this idea or pr really promoted this idea of no more Wacos and no more free Wacos. That is, you don't get to do a Waco and get away with it. And so that's uh, a really important part of the Bunkerville uh, story is how the, how the right-wing militias came to defend um, Bundy in this David and Goliath clash uh, under the guise of no more Wacos. All right. So how about the Oath Keepers' uh, departure? And I'm under the impression that that ruffled some feathers, right? <laughs> You know, Rhodes loves to portray the Oath Keepers as active, retired, and former military who are professionals, right? And he touts that some of the members are, you know, Delta Force, Special Forces, Rangers, or, you know, in, in the Marines. And Rhodes himself was an E-4, an Airborne Qualified Specialist in the 9th Infantry Division. That's the extent of his military background. So what happens... And, and Rhodes is not an intelligence, you know, I mean, he's an intelligent guy, got a degree from, you know, Yale Law School, but he has really no real intelligence background. So during the Battle of Bunkerville, Rhodes claims that the Alabama administration is planning a drone strike on the entire Bundy Ranch compound, which, of course, would kill, you know, who knows how many hundred people, 200 people. I mean, you know, it, it would be it would be absurd for the Obama administration to do that because you'd have Democrats impeaching him the next day. But he claims that there's a source uh, inside the Pentagon. <clears throat> so this source in the Pentagon comes to Rhodes via a source in Texas who calls 
Rhodes. So Rhodes takes this quote unquote intel to the head of security for Bundy. And then the Texas source talks to the head of security, right? Then Rhodes claims that he just happened to have a, excuse me if I cough. He just happened to have an Oath Keeper in Texas who actually was ex-Delta and ex-CIA to talk to this source in Texas who has a source in the Pentagon. So the Oath Keeper in Texas tells Rhodes, well, given that I'm ex-CIA and ex-Delta, this guy and I chatted and he's probably ex-CIA and ex-Delta because we could exchange secret handshakes. Um, But I couldn't verify or corroborate any of the information about what the source in the Pentagon said. Then Rhodes claims that he had a second source who had been giving him little intel tidbits and these turned out to be true. And then the source in the governor's office apparently corroborated the drone strike. And then um, Rhodes put his uh, hair on fire and pulls out of Bunkerville, right? The, the Oath Keepers are going to beat feet out of, the, out of the area of operations. And Rhodes becomes the laughing stock of the right wing. And what happens is Mike Vandebo, uh, who founds the, the, founded the uh, 3% movement, um, he comes and he does an after action report and he concludes basically um, that Rhodes's failure was not one of cowardice, as has been alleged, but the failure of a lack of hard-headed analysis and equally hard-headed or hard-hearted decision-making. In other words, Stuart Rhodes demonstrates that as an E4 in the Army, he has no business leading anybody in anything, Okay. He can't evaluate intelligence. He can't make a decision. He can't delegate. He's an incompetent. And that's, that's the bottom line of, of, of Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers uh, in Bunkerville. All right, so looking back, what do you see as the long-term legacy from the Battle of Bunkerville? Well, I think one of the immediate effects of the Battle of Bunkerville is that it emboldened the right wing. And within two years, or maybe even less than two years, um, the Bundy clan uh, seized the Malheur uh, Nature Preserve in Oregon. And again, the DOJ and FBI prosecution was bungled. And Amon Bundy walked out a hero, and now he's leading his own militia and civic action group against any sensible COVID policies uh, to end this uh, pandemic out in, out in Utah and, and in Nevada. And one of his um, uh, followers uh, ended up in uh, the January 6th attack. So it's emboldened them to think that they could take on the federal government and this David and Goliath uh, struggle and actually win. Um, but, you know, since 2014 or even since 2016, a lot has changed in the West in a very short time period. And the West right now, you know, you read the newspapers, is ravaged by massive forest fires, uh, life-threatening heat domes, and growing droughts. 
Okay. And so the idea that climate change is not responsible is growing less tenuous uh, by the day. Um, there's much less urgency now to transferring public lands to the billionaires. But I suspect that there's going to be a much sharper, um, sharper and fiercer battles out in the West that are, that are coming because the West is basically facing an existential crisis. You know, water is the most precious resource uh, in the West. And you've traveled. Have you traveled around the West at all? Uh, I haven't made it quite out to California, but I know uh, Utah and uh, Colorado yeah. and those places. So, you know, if you've been out West at all, you know, Texas, um, New Mexico, Arizona, um, Southern California, Central Valley, you know, that kind of thing. Water is the scarcest resource and water is the limitation on population. And since 1982, big business has known that the major competition out there is between the big cities which are growing bigger, and the oil companies, which are using a lot of water to do fracking. And they've known this since 1982. And that's, that's a coming conflict. But I think there's also one other thing that's, that's relevant that comes out of the Bunkerville battle. And that is, if you look at the prosecutions of in Bunkerville and the Malheur occupation, okay, the Department of Justice and the FBI had slam dunk cases that they blew. And one legacy is I keep my fingers crossed on the January 6th attack that the DOJ and the FBI don't blow it again. Because they don't seem to have a very good track record of going up against right-wing extremist groups in court. Oh, yeah. Well, I was, I was even thinking back to like, what was it? The Smor Fort Smith trial from like 1988. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. The sedition trial, they lost. That emboldened the right wing. You know, those white supremacists took the best shot of the federal government and then said, Whoop. <laughs> no more to fear from these guys. Well, I got to ask you, though, I mean, how much of this is due to just the FBI's use of informants? Because, I mean, if I remember correctly, the guy who had torpedoed the 1988 trial specifically was... Um, Oh, he was the guy who eventually shot up like the Jewish synagogue in 2008 or something like that. Shoot, I can't remember his name, but it was just it was a disaster because this guy already had like the Bureau had already suspected him of being a murderer. I think back in like the late 70s when they had brought him Frazier, Glenn Frazier, something like that. Miller, yeah. maybe Glenn Frazier Miller. But they had already suspected him of being a murderer when they brought him in as an informant. And then, you know, he sank the Fort Smith trial. And then for years afterwards, they really couldn't do anything with him because of the embarrassment of all the crimes they suspected him of. And then, of course, it all came out eventually anyway, when, you know, again, he shot up a Jewish synagogue. So it seems like in a lot of cases, this has become an issue for the Bureau where they effectively compromise themselves by working with some of these figures. I mean, it's it's not unlike the, I suppose, the scenario um, oh, with Whitey Bulger and, uh, you know, having an FBI informant or informant within the Bureau. Well, you know, one of the reasons why they lost the Malheur occupation case is because I can't remember, there's about, you know, you know, don't hold me to the number, but those are like about 20 defendants, right? With, with, with different charges, maybe 25 defendants, whatever it is, you know. But if I remember, there's about 15 informants that the FBI had at any one given time, you know, 
flowing in and out of the occupation, okay? And at the trial, you know, it's just ordinary folks, right? I mean, that's, that's what the jury trial is, just ordinary local folks listening to this um, uh, testimony and being turned off by how many FBI informants there were targeting those guys. And that was one of the reasons why they lost. They lost for a variety of reasons, but that was one of the reasons they were lost. Um, they've also lost, uh, they lost the um, Hootery trial, right? So they had, they had informants in that. And when the jury came back with, well, these guys were just chit-chatting, you know, what, what's going on? If you look at, if you look at the left-wing literature on the FBI, um, you, the, the literature is how FBI informants actually created um, Islamic terrorist plots. So you're right in, in, in terms of, you know, there's a danger uh, that the FBI has in these court cases of what is the real role of the informants. That being said, I, you know, the, the, the Tucker Carlson argument and the GOP argument that FBI informants created the January 6th attack is simply ludicrous because they didn't. They didn't have FBI informants inside the attack. They've had, what do they call them, unindicted co-conspirators um, that are people that have not yet been charged with crimes. And then they've had anonymous, you know, person one, person two, person 10, person 20, or people who are uh, potentially witnesses and, or potentially being charged with a crime. But the FBI did not use informants um, for the January 6th attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. All right. Well, on that note, I suppose we should wrap up for now. Uh, it's always fascinating to have you on, James. So, uh, as always. <clears throat> and thank you guys out there for listening. Uh, it's always uh, great. And uh, thank you always for your support. So, on that note, uh, we shall sign off for now. Good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>